Hey, welcome back to Dad Conversations. Today I spoke to Bruce Mullen. Bruce is an Australian who has lived and worked in the US, Europe, and Australia. He's a thoughtful, quiet, retrospective guy who I enjoyed catching up with. He shared his experience as a self-employed consultant, his upbringing and motivation, his marriage advice, parenting style, and we got philosophical on the pursuit of happiness. Now, if you enjoy this episode, please go ahead and subscribe to the show. The next episodes will include a healthcare administrator, a tattoo artist, a software salesman, and a well-known OBGYN doc who ran for U.S. Senate. I'll be talking with each of them about their different areas of expertise, their life stories and general philosophies, and of course their approach to being dads. All right, it is now time to hear from Bruce. I hope you enjoy. Bruce, thanks for being here. Hey, I'm it's fantastic. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, man, my first guest from down under. No, that's great. <laughs> I'm really, really looking forward to this because I actually used to live in America a long, long time ago. First off, you are an agility consultant. Um, can you tell me a little bit more? I feel like I understand the the term agile uh, when it comes to coding. You know, it's like uh, rapid feedback, um, m- m- small assignments, and then uh, ensuring you're keeping everything on on target. Is it is that the same type of agile or agility that you're focused on as a consultant? Love to hear about your work. Yeah, well, and this has been a this has been a life's work to get to this point. But the the future that we face is a future that's beyond COVID. It's going to be very very uncertain with artificial intelligence and how we will work and what people will be doing in the future. Like when my children are my age, how they will live and how they will work will be totally different to what's happening now. It's the concept of the future of work. So the concept of agility for me is really around adapting to a changing environment. And one of the challenges around organisations and teams is that they don't recognize the environment is changing and they don't or are unable to execute at speed to take advantage of those changes to enable them to survive. No one predicted COVID. And in fact, the organizations that survived COVID the best, apart from obviously Netflix, were organisations that had the right people, the people that could adapt quickly. And particularly middle-aged men who'd been used to working one way, particularly command and control for most of their lives, all of a sudden they were managing a team and that team was remote. They couldn't touch, feel or see the work being done. They had to trust their people. So that was a really difficult transition for a lot of managers to move to a world where they had to trust the people that they were working with 
and not be able to physically see what they were working on. So that's one side of the agility component. The other side of the component is, is the challenge that's facing organisations are very, very difficult to identify where the competition is coming from because we've had a lot of technological changes within the economy. So I'm sure the taxi industry never saw Uber coming. Kodak never saw digital cameras coming to the extent that it did. So in order to respond to these external challenges, we've got problems that are difficult to identify and they require solutions where you don't really even know where to start. There's no quick fixes. You've really got to constantly experiment. The beliefs about work and how life are, are completely different. And you really, it's really hard to, when the problem is not clearly defined and the solution is not clearly defined. And it's led by the people who have the problem um, in organisations. It's a very much a bottom-up approach as, as opposed to the old world where we could clearly define in an organisation what we needed to fix and how we would solve it. That would be like an engineering problem. And right. uh, we could put that change in quickly. But the changes we now are really around social engineering they're complex, they're uncertain, they're ambiguous, they're ambiguous, and it requires a completely different way of navigating the future. And that's what agility is all about, is about being able to navigate the future more effectively than you've done so in the past. Hmm. So uh, let's get to know you a little more. Um, would you mind telling me you know, where you grew up, what type of kid you were? What were your interests when you were a child? Yeah, well, I I was born in a small mining town in the northwest of Australia back in the 1960s. My father was a mining engineer, and I've got photos of me playing in the desert sands in, a, in an area called the Pilbara, which is famous for iron ore and um, Rio Tinto now is doing a lot of mining in that area. And so my parents came to Melbourne when I was there were two or three, and we've been here ever since. So I went to my local, in Australia we call it primary school, but you might call it nursery school, and then up until the age of 10 or 11, and then we go to high school up until 17, 18. So when I went to at my uh, local primary school, um, I went, that was in the, the late 70s, and one of my claims to fame is that I was the Times Tables champion <laughs> in 1981, undefeated. At my well, local, how, what, what year? What uh? What grade were you in school when yeah, you won the I would have been about eleven. Would have been 11. about eleven. Yeah. And how 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 many times tables did you have to memorize? Oh, uh, we just did up to twelve by twelve. Okay. But I, 
<laughs> we had a competition. Uh, we used to go head to head. So we'd have two lines and you'd have head to head. First person to answer correctly would get it. And then, so the idea mm. is that as soon as you answered, if you got it correct, you would go to the back of the queue. If you got it wrong, you would have to sit down. So in every okay. time we did that in the classroom, I think I was always either winning it or coming you know, in the last pair. <laughs> so the thing was that because that's kind of maths and came quite easy to me, when I was going through high school, I kind of coasted a bit because I just had a little bit of fun. And then um, we'll talk about um, some family troubles I had in my teenage years, but ever since then, I've I've always had an interest in numbers and particularly in understanding evidence-based because um, background in finance. And now that I'm doing this agility, um, I'm, I'm able to measure organisations. And, and one of the things that we do a lot of is, is measurement. And that's statistical analysis of performance, and that drives changes in behaviour. It's all evidence-based. So where I am now is not far from where I was you know, 40 years ago, just with a love of numbers and and I'm trying to understand a curious mind of how the world works. That's good. Good to be able to use those strengths and lessons learned in childhood. Um. So you said your dad was an engineer at the mine. Um, What was his parenting style? What's something he did really well as a father? Well, he was very, very bright. My dad used to invest in the latest technology. So when I was 10 or 11, we had, back in those days, it was an IBM PC XT computer in our house. And we probably would have been one of the few families to have that. And my dad had that curious mind as well. So we bought a a, a PC in the very, very early days. So I remember five and a quarter inch floppy disks. I'm not sure if you remember those, Sean. And oh, yeah. we used to boot we used to have to boot it up with a floppy disk. That kind of um Thinking was where my, that was my dad. You know, he was always looking at new things, trying new things. But at the same time, he was very, very consumed by his work. So I didn't see a lot of him other than, you know, at family functions. Um, He was quite often doing a lot of thinking, a lot of working. And so as a dad, he was quite remote. I spent most of my childhood uh, with my brothers and sisters and my mum. As we were growing up, dad was like the weekend dad, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Probably wasn't uh, uncommon, right? Um, especially back in the day, right? Yeah. In that, in that generation, yeah. The mum was the mum or mom was the household uh, person, and dad was the income person. And um, so mum looked after us, and, and then we spent a bit of time with dad on the weekend, but but really not that much. So I'm always interested to hear about someone's uh, career journey. Um, tell me, you know, where did you go when you, 
finished school? Uh, any any twists or turns? What were you? Uh, did you are are did you become the career that you thought you would when you were eighteen or twenty? Uh, most people typically the answer is no, but uh, love to hear about your your career path. The I think one of the challenges today and even in my day was really knowing what it is that you wanted to do. And I had quite, I had some challenges in my late teens. And as a result of that, I really didn't apply myself. So I didn't do that typical path where you get a high score and then you go in, go on to college. I, I just kind of wanted to see the world a bit. So I, kind of didn't take it seriously and so I went and traveled for 12 months and so I did jobs like unloading wheat trains I worked in bars restaurants I think I had you know traveling around Australia I think I had in, in 12 months something like 40 different jobs we painted a luxury yacht in in one of the coastal areas so I just went from town to town for for nearly 12 months. And then when I got back to Melbourne, I kind of wanted to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life because I I, I hadn't got any college in my side. So and I got this job just answering phone calls at a in a customer service center about uh, insurance policies. And you know, that started me thinking about, you know, is this something I wanted to do for the rest of my life? Even then, I still didn't know. So once I got into a role where, hey, this is good, I'm, I'm enjoying it, I know I know what I'm doing, then I started, then I met my wife at the time, who became my girlfriend, but we, she encouraged me to go back to college. So I did college at night school for seven years, so I did an, a finance accounting degree, and then from there, I, about 28 years old, this is where it gets crazy, is that I had one three-year-old, I had a newborn and my wife, and I thought, what the hell? I'm 28 years old, let's, let's just go to America. <laughs> I always wanted to do it. So I took a job with, uh, this was back in the late 90s during the dot-com, you know, the the ERP boom and the technology boom that happened, the first one anyway, in America. And um, I took a job with a with a group over there and it turns out that the, the job didn't work out as I'd planned. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there, you know, with packed up my house, et cetera, et cetera, got it all rented, got two kids, a newborn, and the job just hasn't worked out. And this like is before where, you even started it, they yeah uh, yeah had to re resend or something. Yeah. So what happened was we'd been over there for I'd been over there for about six months, and my wife followed behind me because she was packing the house up and she was getting everything ready at the at the same time she had a newborn, and my three year old son. So so by the time she got there, you know she was like she was so excited. We finally we've made it. But at that time the job hadn't worked out like the contract that they were expecting to win it didn't come through so all of a sudden i didn't have a contract we had my wife on my doorstep saying i'm here let's make this happen 
And yeah, so good to see yeah, you, honey. Got something to talk about. <laughs> yeah, so it was really, really. It's a great country. I, I love America because you know the people around me were were fantastic. Like, what, what do I do? <laughs> and my wife was just like, I'm not going back. We've come here to do something, and I'm not going back. And that's really part of the my makeup now is that I got to a point where you know, how can we make the best of a situation like this? Because I was on a visa, an H1B visa, which meant that you had to come home straight away, or pretty much straight away once you once you ceased employment. So I managed to negotiate uh, a settlement so I could find some time to get another project. And it was just a, you know, the planets aligned. I went for an interview. They ended up um, contracting me out to an organization in New York um, as a consultant there. So as soon as I got that, that contract, um, they agreed to keep me on. So they terminated me. And in the termination period, I found a contract and by doing that, it enabled me to give me the time to figure out what I, what I do next. And, um, and by working in America and with my background in, in insurance, I ended up um, taking a role with uh, PwC in their insurance practice and management consulting out of New nice. York. I did an internship at PwC. It was oh. an awesome company. It was. It was. And I had the, had the time of my life. Once I got there, I I ended up working in uh, Los Angeles from New York to LA. I travelled there every week for eleven months, um, and then I came home on weekends. That was tough for me, but my wife loved it because while I was over there, she was seeing America. So she went to thirty four states in that time. We had a great time, and then then I got a project in Bermuda. And I was helping a global insurance company transform with technology. And that project was one of the you know, the highlights of my life doing that. And then my wife got pregnant, so for the third child. And she wanted to come home because she just felt like she was ready to, um, and particularly with the third child, she really wanted to have her family around her. So we came back um, in around 2002 after three years. Um, and back, so back next, to Melbourne? Yeah, back to Melbourne. Yeah, we had uh, we had a third child. And then with the third child, we, again, we left. We went back. <laughs> and this time I didn't go back to the States. I went back to Bermuda. So we ended up living in Bermuda for a little while. Was this something that you, uh, a, a big sales pitch to convince your wife to move or was she like you know what we came home it wasn't what i was expecting maybe let's go for a who initiated that that move i'm gonna ask it was but it was both in fact it was the latter because when we came back it was great for about three weeks but then you realize that people are still fighting and families are families <laughs> yeah and and it was like we never left and we thought and then this opportunity came up to go back to bermuda we again we had a six-week-old child so we took my third child uh, with us this time, and the three, five of us went off to Bermuda, and um, this place. It's one of those places that's just lost in time, 
um, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, at the time, I was there 20 years ago, and it, it had a lot of significant growth because of the, you know, the economy around tax havens. So it was quite there was money everywhere, but at the same time, it was like a small country town. Um, I loved it. It was one of the best best times of my life. That's so cool. Yeah, I don't think I've ever met anyone who's who's spent time in Bermuda, at least not that they've told me about. So I just think of Bermuda yeah. Triangle. I really don't know anything about <laughs> it, other than, like you said, tax havens and uh, Bermuda yeah. Triangle. It's twenty one miles long and two miles wide, and it's hmm. it's just in the middle of the. It's a volcano that erupted many hundreds of thousands, millions of years ago, I guess. And then on top of this volcano, there's trees and and it was founded by a shipwreck. So their whole history in the 1600s, it was one of the first, you know, when the when the Mayflower in, in America, America was first founded, it was that part of that. So, you know, they, they've got their roots back in the very origins of America. But... Um, they they themselves they're a British colony and and they're very British but they they're a very unique they're in a unique place and um, oh, it was just a wonderful time to be to be to be in a place that was a bit like an anachronism they you've heard of the Bermuda shorts and the long socks no, no I never yeah <laughs> people wore these long shorts and long socks to work with short sleeve shirts. It was just, it was just a fabulous place. And that was the, that was the Bermuda um, corporate wear. It was great. It was a fantastic <laughs> place. <laughs> cool. So uh, what did you do after Bermuda? Yeah. Well, when I came back, this is when, you know, after an adventure like that, it's like uh, life is pretty boring in terms of just, going into an organisation and, you know, it, Melbourne didn't seem the same after that for me. And I had some conversations with my dad and I said to him in around 2005, 2006, what would, what would you have done differently, you know? What did you, what advice would you give, would you give someone like me? He was, I'm just trying to work out what I want to do. And he said, um, he said, I would have taken more risk at work. I would have tried things. I would have not stayed at the same company for 30 or 40 years. And um, because he was having a good time as well, he was made redundant and then he was doing some, some cool stuff. So I, I took that advice on. And then about 10 years later, I was having a chat to my dad. You gave me this advice to take a risk, but you didn't tell me how bloody hard it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, yeah there's a, yeah. Uh, that's a double-edged sword. Yeah, so it's 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 something I kind of wasn't prepared for because it looks so easy when you look at all these successful people. Hey, I can do that. I can I can mirror that, and you know, that's that's doesn't look hard. But what you don't realize is. In order for that person to be there in that moment and look successful, there's probably 10 years of hard work to get there. Mm. And you don't see that. You know, your overnight success in 10 years, I, I think that was Andy Warhol or someone along those lines. And it's so it was so true that it was a lot harder than I thought it was going to be um, when you're out on your own, running your own 
practice. Yeah. So that was, um, and then, then I'm here now. That that was what, fifteen years ago, and you know, fifteen different iterations. I'm, this is where I am now. Nice. So you've been uh, under your own shingle for fifteen years now. Is that right? Yeah, roughly. I've taken contracts, interim contracts along the way. Um, so you know, you've got to feed the family and raise some kids. But my, my goal has always been to be in an organisation, my own organisation, where I can generate enough income to control my own destiny. That's that's my, been my goal all my life, is I just want to be in control of my own destiny. What is your approach to mentoring? This is a really, really good question. In fact, you know, in my career, and I think a lot of people get to where I got to, you take the path of least resistance. If someone offers you a contract and it gives you a bit of stability, whether it's good or bad, you take it. And so you can get buried in your work and then you stick your head up and five, ten years later you realise yeah, you know, I've I've been doing this for ten years now, five years, and one of the my lessons learned in life would have been to surround myself with mentors, and I only really started doing that in the last, you know, five five years when when I really got serious about developing a business. But I think a career mentor would have been useful for me. Oh, twenty. 30 years ago, because what happened for me was I did take this zigzag career. I just kept trying different things, but there was no end goal. I was mm. just really just taking whatever came in front of me and, and trying it out. So when I got to you know, the last five years, I was thinking, my goodness, if you look at my life, I've got this eclectic collection of experiences but i'm not one thing so people can't say hey this guy's an accountant or he's a lawyer i'm i'm on the sum collection of all those experiences so when i got serious about my business in about 2013 that's when i started reaching out they had been successful or be that were good that i respected of what they did and then I would bounce ideas off them and, and I actually mentored other people as well. And I got mentored myself. A lot of the mentoring I had was informal. It was just over a coffee with people I know that have known me. And one of my most profound ones was one of my early bosses back in the 90s. We'd kept in touch for, for many, many years, just informally every now and then. But I, I just got to a point where I just need somebody to validate my thinking. And uh, he was brilliant. He really, he really helped me straighten up uh, what I was trying to achieve for my business. And so in the last five years, it's kind of been the best and the worst time of my life in business. But having those mentors around you is really, really important. So that's great. Find those people who are 
who are A, successful, or B, you can learn from. And the big challenge with, with I think, in life and what I've found as a business owner is there's a lot of people out there that are faking it. And being a consultant <laughs> or a coach or whatever you are, you know, there's everyone's got this sort of expectation that you're driving a flashy car and and that, you know, you're living the high life lifestyle. Well, in fact we're not. You know, being a being a professional services consultant or a management consultant or a coach, you know, it's it's not this dreamy lifestyle lifestyle that people people think it is. It's it's hard work, and um, you've got to have a certain kind of temperament to do it. You've got to be driven, and it's something you've got to be passionate about. And that's sure. that's kind of where I where I've landed. Cool. So when you get some spare time, uh, tell me about your what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? Yeah. Well, funny you mention that because. I was so inspired by American culture that the three favourite things in my life are in terms of hobbies. And number one is I make Adirondack chairs and I make them out of aimed lumber or timber as we call it here. The other one was I also make yard Christmas decorations out of, out of lumber. Um, because I think America celebrates Christmas like no one else. <laughs> and that was one of our favourite times was the Christmas time of year in America. We we, we just love it. Um, and yeah. so I make those Christmas decorations now for, for yards. And the third hobby really is buffalo wing sauce. Oh, but, yeah. Um, that is something that uh, you guys, you guys got it. You invented the world's best sauce. <laughs> Do you use Frank's Red Hot or what? No, I like. Um, there's a brand called Wings. I think it comes out of San Francisco. I, I import it. <laughs> wow! And it's one of my favorite. Uh, it's my favorite things from America. Is that it just takes me back there all the time. And the key about um, buffalo wing sauce is it is whenever I met with somebody. We always had wings. And whenever we went out, we always had wings. And it was just it's it's happy times. It just brings yeah. back those memories. Yeah, that's good. That's when you you gotta trust somebody to want to eat wings in front of them because that's not you're not using cutlery <laughs> with, with wings. And if you are, <laughs> I don't want to hang out with you. You gotta go it's for messy. it. Yeah. yeah. Um it's good fun. Yeah, but uh I, I don't do woodworking or have any particular skills there, but I can say it is, it's fun to make stuff. You know, I, I bet that's um, fulfilling making the chairs or, um, you know, I think I can't remember the other one, lawn ornaments or something. Um, yeah. Right? Yeah. We make Christmas, you know, like, like snowman or Santa oh. Claus or reindeer. Okay. Those but sort, it's those fun to get, sit down and get into it and and like plan mm -hmm. it and and build it and create something you know that's like yeah. that's a, a hobby that i think a lot of people want to get to when they have spare time yeah i just i missed it because until covid came i was too busy like i hadn't made adirondack chairs for like 10 years and i've made six of them in the last you know three months 
And so the ones I make, uh, I looked at probably 20 different designs while I was in the States. And this this particular design I settled on was the, the, the most comfortable. Um, they're bigger than the average one, but they're made out of really solid um, hardwood, which means they're heavy and yeah. they will just last forever. And... And I make them out of reclaimed timber because I don't like cutting trees down per se. So people often, you know, do some remodeling and they get this leftover timber, leftover lumber. And I use that to make furniture. And and so it's kind of completing the cycle. And I make furniture to last. And it's all artisan. So every piece is almost unique because it's come yeah. from a different house and it looks different. So no two chairs look the same. Because they're made out of reclaimed timber. How do you get wood? You, like you just tell your friends, like, "Hey, if anyone's doing a construction project yeah, and throwing yeah, away some wood, bad. I mean, what?" Yeah, yeah. We go. There's there's companies that specialize in reclaimed timber. Um, so I go to those companies, or I, well, I'll give you an example. My my wife is a teacher, and her her school was doing a demolition and a rebuild. So I made two chairs out of salvaged wood that's got all of the children's drawings on it. <laughs> and um, so the school said, oh, no, it's rubbish. You won't want any of that. But I, I made these uh, Adirondacks out of it. So that was quite fulfilling to to save that timber. And yeah, for it. sure. That's yeah. cool. So uh, getting into life, general kind of life questions, I always – I'm fascinated to hear about someone's progression from being a teenager to to being a successful adult. Oftentimes, teenager, you know, just uh, screwing things up left and right. At least from my own experience. Uh, but curious, like, did you have any um, teachers or principals or coaches or grandparents when you were a teenager mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. did not expect you to turn into a successful adult? <laughs> you mentioned that because I was the opposite. I was the one that was screwing around. The um, my teachers were constantly telling me take life seriously, knuckle down, do some work, and I I didn't at the time I was doing my um my so last three years of high school, uh, my parents separated, and uh, my dad moved out. And that was just a horrible time. And I really lost my focus because of that. And I was just mucking around and screwing yeah. around. Um, so the teachers that I had were trying their best to, to tell me what I should be doing, which was just to knuckle down and, and get on with it because I had this potential and I didn't realise what they were saying until many, many years later. <laughs> when, when if you look back, you think, man, if I had have just applied myself, you know, I wouldn't have been on this eclectic zigzag career path. You know, life might have been a little bit easier. But at the same time, you know, it's the path less travelled that shapes and strengthens and builds your character. So, right. So I I can't do anything about the past except sure, acknowledge sure. it and move on, but I was the opposite of that person. 
Yeah, but you've been able to succeed and, and raise kids along the way. And you've yeah. had a, a zigzag path, as you say, but um, still, you know, having a successful life. So um, I yeah, so I try to remember my remind myself of like similar experiences of my own when I was um, just a total idiot. And as a teenager, mm-hmm. when I see kids now, I'm like, man, these kids are fools. Like they're so stupid and all that. And I'm like, yeah, I was kind of <laughs> like that too. I think we all were to an extent. Well, well, Sean, the good thing about us is that we didn't have social media when we were growing up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of awful. That is awful to have to deal yeah. with. As a, as yeah. You must be dealing with that now with your family. Yeah, we're, yeah. um, my oldest is um, 11 now. Yeah, there you go. Still, we're going to try to go at least a few more years without any devices for him. Yeah. Um, we'll see. So what is something that makes you really happy and not enough people are trying? I, I think, I, and this is, this is something that, it's taken me a long, long time. It's it's saying no. It's it's saying no to things that are not important, and and by saying no, it's giving me the time to do the things I love doing. Like I neglected my hobbies for ten years because I was running a business and I was working seven days a week, and. The one thing that this pandemic has caught has has taught me is is it's the global control alt delete reset that we all needed and I needed because I was saying yes to everything and because of that I wasn't doing the things that my heart needed and so I wasn't spending time with my family I wasn't spending time in my workshop making Adirondack chairs, I was just working right. all the way through. So I think not enough people are saying no. People people are spreading themselves so thin and they think they need to be busy all the time or doing what they're doing. And I think saying no has been a really, really important part because by saying no to something, I'm actually saying yes to something else. And by saying yes to those things, it's it's making my heart sing, which it wasn't doing, you know, for 10 years. That's good, man. Yeah. What is something that you've changed your mind on in the last five years? Um, at, well, I was always suspicious of social media, but now I'm almost... Completely um, overwhelmed by how by how powerful and insidious it is, and I always was thinking five years ago that you know these Facebooks and LinkedIn and all those social YouTube's etc. going to be good, but running my own business, I, I found them grossly overrated and there's an author in the states marina gorbis who's an interesting commentator on social media and she argues that we've lost our cognitive immunity you know it's hard now to sort fact from fiction and to know what's reality 
in what's fake news. And and I tried in the last 12 months, I actually started doing some work in Facebook to see just to see what would happen. It was like an experiment. And and I was profoundly disappointed with it's just an open sewer of fake news. So I thought this social media with stuff was going to really be a force for good, but I, I just, I think as a society, I think it's our kids are struggling with it. Our, you know, we've lost our sense of what's true and our trusted sources of information. And I, I think that for me in the last five years, I, I, I thought um, I've changed my mind about social media, even though I use it. I I use it very, very sparingly and only in a certain way. Um, I, I just don't think it's it's a necessary evil, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 So tell me a little about your family and maybe a favorite vacation you've taken or favorite family activity you've taken up during COVID? Yeah, well, been married now for 27 years and I've got three, three children, a son and followed by two daughters. And they've all been overseas. I was actually 27 before I first went overseas. And one of the things for me around being a father was that I had the most wonderful time with my son growing up with him, uh, teaching him, playing football, uh, coaching his football, and taking him through into his teenage years. We, we were just best mates. When he turned 15, it was like, Dad, you're too daggy. I've got to hang out with my mates. <laughs> so when he he got to the age of 15, his 15th birthday, I do remember it pretty clearly. I took him out to the movies. We went out together. And we went out to see one of sort of an older movie. And he, and like American Pie, I guess, would be a good example. Because um, he wanted to go and see that. And that was the last time we really, he was really like father-son. From then on, it was all about his mates and his friends. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's how that's how the change, how quickly that change can happen. Uh, happen transition. No time. dad wants to. Yeah. No dad wants to come, but typically comes anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. So now he didn't want me anywhere, right? He didn't want to be seen with me, and that was a big thing for me because it was like, wow, what's you know, I've lost. You know, I felt like I lost something at that time. So being a dad. So then. I looked at my daughters at the time. I had a 12-year-old and a nine-year-old. And I thought to myself, well, I, it was a different kind of experience with them to my son because I was playing football with him and cricket and baseball and all, yeah, all the sport. But with them, it was a little bit different. I didn't quite know as a dad. And I thought to myself, there must be other dads, you know, they're feeling this way. Well, what can we do with our daughters? So I've got a group of... Um, men together with daughters of the same age, and we organized a charity event, a golf day, 
And this was it back in 2015. And I set it up purely so that dads could spend more time with their daughters because it was really, really, really important that they do that for both the daughter and the dad. And that started in 2015. It's been going for five years now. And even during COVID, we still managed to fit it in. <laughs> and what happens with that event was I never, I've never really play golf. And, um, but I needed something that was easy enough for both dads and daughters to play. You could, it was social, it was a bit of hit and giggle. And um, so that was a way that I could help other dads who were not connecting as well with their daughters. There's a lot of dads spend time with their sons, but not as much with their daughters. And that's kind of, that's a change I wanted to make. Yeah, I'd agree with that because like, at least for me, I don't know if this is for everybody, but it's just easy. It's more instinctive to kind of know what the what the boys are interested in and and uh, playing with them is a little more natural. Um, I have to work yeah. at it and be more thoughtful um, to come up with activities that my daughter will be as excited about. Yeah, yeah. And and it's. I found it really, really rewarding. And and as a result, we've got a bunch of us that still do the dad daughter golf day five years later. So we've it's it's a big day. Happens in every every February. And I did one for I also did one for my son as well. We did a, a father son uh, golf day, which we're still doing. Um, and that's been going for now seven years. The, um, you mentioned the vacation. Well, here's a story for you. I, my favourite vacation when I was in the States was to a place called Cape Canaveral. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's in Florida. It's where yeah, the space shuttle. Yeah, yeah. So that was a joke in there. But the the Cape Canaveral is the is my favourite place because I went there. I think three or four times to see the space shuttle launch when I was living in America. And um, every time I went down there, it just, there was always a delay. It was weather or it was something. So the, the, the shuttle was on the launch pad, but they'd called off the launch um, so many times. So that's kind of, and then they closed the program, I think in 2013, the last shuttle launch happened. So I never got to see a, a, a shuttle launch. And my joke with one of my school friends who came over to spend some time with us in America. We also went together to Cape Canaveral was that when we were in uh, the Everglades, you know, we, we always wanted to see a manatee and, and we, we didn't see one in the Everglades. So then we went off to Cape Canaveral and I went and I was obviously just looking at the shuttle and looking at all the other, you know, the museum there, etc. He went off and did a tour and he comes back and says, guess what I saw? And I said, what? A manatee. <laughs> so I never got to see the manatee nor the space shuttle launch. But hey, that's okay. That was back in uh, the early 2000s. That's got to be a little depressing to uh, go on multiple occasions. And, and I get it. You know, if you're not 100% sure that everything's ready to go, don't launch it, yeah. right? But, yeah. um, but if you're, you know... You almost it's like don't you scheduling the the launch and publicizing show up on this date we'll be ready 
and you're consistently not ready. Uh, that's yeah. going to be a little discouraging. Well, the funny thing is that you actually had to book a seat. It was like a booking system. So I'd do the booking, and the number of times they cancelled it, every time they cancelled they wouldn't give you a refund. They'd just give you a credit. And because of the number of times they cancelled it, and I got all these, ended up with all these credits. So uh-huh. I had to buy something. <laughs> well, I've got all this, this NASA memorabilia in my house <laughs> because, of a, because I could never get, I never got to see the space on launch. I just wanted that that one photo of that launch. I just wanted to take that one photo, but it was never to be. Yeah. Um yeah, I, I mean, it would be cool to be there. You feel the heat of the, the rocket taking off and all that. But at the same time, it's kind of like being home, watching it on TV or on the computer. You get a much better view. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, nice. so you've been married 27 years. Uh, yeah. Congratulations to you Thank and you. your wife. That's uh, That's incredible. I'm sure there's been some... You know, highs and lows. Speaking for someone who's only been married for uh, a little over a decade, I you know, yeah. um, marriage is a journey. Do you have any general advice for somebody who might be struggling in their marriage? Yeah, I've got, I've got two, I've got two things. Um, the first thing is that there was a movie called When Mary, When When Harry Met Sally, and they show couples in that movie that have been married for many, many years. And one of the couples in that movie said that the reason why they've been married so long is that because they, they never hated each other at the same time. And that is such a profound statement because when you do get married, and I got married fairly young, I was 23, I think you grow up a little bit together and you get to know each other very, very quickly. And you do at times hate each other. You know, life's not easy. And when you get to a stage where, you know, you have arguments or what have you, but there's always one person, you're never hating each other at the same time. And that's kind of been my story is we've had situations where things haven't gone well and but we've one of us has been able to get the other one through it and that was really really profound the the other one is this is really for all the men out there who are looking for the trophy wife you know the trophy wife concept you're the young the younger model when you trade in your older model for a younger model and you drive the convertible and you know, what I see as what men are doing now is they, they're trading in their 20, 25-year marriages because, you know, the empty nest syndrome, the kids have gone, they look at each other and say, well, how the hell are we going to spend the rest of our life together? The life is really 80-20. So you only get, of your partner, you, Whatever you want, you'll only get 80%. So nothing will ever be perfect for you. When you trade into a younger model, you'll what a lot of men don't realise is they'll still get 
80 percent they think they're going to they think it's going to be better on the other side but the reality is they're still only going to get 80 percent of what they've got now and the challenge is they'll actually probably only get 60 around 60 to 70 percent because they've got to deal with two families and that's that's not easy my sister's been through two divorces and it and for those kind of reasons that the man takes off and thinks they've got a better life somewhere else and the reality is it doesn't really matter it's just which 80 percent do you want of that person so my advice to people who are who are married and struggling is is to work out how you can get your 80 percent to 85 percent rather than try to explore greener pastures where the reality is you'll probably only end up with 60 to 70 percent right and you might have a much more fulfilling life looking at it that way than you would by looking for the trophy wife. Yeah, and even being grateful, finding new things to be grateful for, uh, for your spouse, you know, recognizing all the things that you didn't see before um, yeah. really help. I think, um, I think the emptiness syndrome is, is really, really important. I think you spend all your, all your life bringing kids up and then all of a sudden they've grown up and they move. And then you look at each other and you don't even know each other. And that's the problem that we need to solve. Yeah. That's, that does uh, happen more often than you'd think. Yeah. In what ways are you a better father than three to five years ago? I spent years trying to work as hard as I could to get to where I needed to be financially when really that wasn't that important to them. And one of the things my kids are looking for is for for dad to be present. And so that's that's part of the transformation that I've made is saying no to the things that don't really matter anymore. And in the past, I was keeping contracts or staying with organisations purely for all the wrong reasons. Um, I wasn't enjoying it, um, but I was doing it because I needed the money. And and that's true. I still need the money, but I I need I need the happiness more than the money now. So for me, it's really around understanding how, as a person that I can only control um, what I do and who I am. And by being present, I think that's all your kids want. They just want you around. And that's that's the global COVID. I spent more time with my kids in the last six months than I have in the last, you know, 20 years. And that's I've gotten to know point. them so much better. Yeah. It, it's it's always um, tempting as a dad to think like, well, if I can invest this much more time and make this much more money, then we can be doing really cool things yeah. together as a family. Yeah. Uh, then we can get more new toys for the kids. But it's like, if I'm going to spend 15 or 20% more time or 30% more time 
investing in whatever to get more income or more toys, that's probably not going to make an appreciable difference for the child. They're going to think like hanging out with dad is fun and uh, you can you can be entertained with cardboard boxes. You know, um, you don't need more money mm. to uh, have fun. So that's that's such a good reminder, because I feel like for me, I'm, I'm always tempted to um, try to get more and more and more. <laughs> it's like now more I need more time with the kids, you know. Um, you never get it back. You, so, you never get it back. Yeah, yeah. Like you said, fifteen. Boom. You're like, oh crap, things just changed. So uh, to wrap up the family life before we get to final final questions, what's one thing that you could look back and say, you know what, I did that really well as a parent. That's. Um, I think it was my. With my son, I think I spent so much time with my son um, when he was growing up. I would take him to the park, we'd play football, baseball, and I spent so much time with him until he was 15. Um, that would be the one thing that, you know, I felt that... I really, really helped him um, shape shape him, and he's a great kid now. And and my daughters, uh, although it was a different relationship, I've still spent a fair, a fair bit of time with them, but not as much as I would have liked, given the amount of travel and work I was doing, particularly in the last um, five to ten years. Mm. But my son's now twenty. 24 this month and uh they grow up quickly quickly so that's that's my lesson is to be in the moment good one um all right as you look towards the future tell me one thing that you are optimistic about oh, oh this is one of my favorite topics i think um i'm optimistic about the youth of today a lot of people say they're lazy they're millennials they're i think i'm so optimistic about the youth of today how they will change and they will break the status quo i don't know if you remember from the 60s you know how you know things changed dramatically in the 60s for for society i think we've got that coming i think our kids will take back the future I think our generation or my generation has um, scorched the planet to some respect. Um, we've, we've just taken whatever we can out of the earth. And I think we're, we're going to leave the world a little bit worse off. And I think the kids of today. Gen, Gen Xers, man, you guys ruined yeah, everything. Yeah, we are. <laughs> and the boomers, the boomers. Hey, boomer. Yeah. And we had... Um, yeah, we just exploited the world, right? We didn't know any better. And now I think this generation, you know, Greenberg, and you remember the gun protests in America a, a year or two back because of all the school shootings? I think the kids are going to take back. They are going to take it back and, um, and, re and rebalance the world a little bit. And I'm really looking forward to that. I, I, I give every confidence that the kids of today 
will make the world a better place. And they'll fix a lot of the things that we stuffed up. It's a Gen X. <laughs> I, like yeah. your, I like your analogy there, Sean. <laughs> yeah. Hey, really do you have that. any shows or podcasts that you want to recommend other people to check out? Yeah, I love um, I love Sam Harris. He's got a he's got a podcast called Making Sense. Yep, and he's got a very broad um, bunch of people that uh, he brings in, and they talk about all sorts of topics. And particularly this year, I really enjoyed um, the observations of what was happening in U.S. politics. Um, it was fascinating listening to to that podcast. The other one, if anybody's in management or leadership, is Dave Stahoviak, um, Coaching for Leaders, is a really, really good podcast. He's been doing it for, for 10 years now. He was well and truly way ahead of the game. Wow. But, um, that's a really good podcast if you're into leadership and management. Coaching that was an leaders. interesting name. Say it one more time so that we can remember. Uh, Dave Stahoviak. Stahoviak. Yeah, it's it's coaching for leaders. Okay. Cool. So if you search up coaching for leaders, I think you'll find it. All right. And uh, what is a good cause you wish more people knew about? I think um, one of the things that we need to, as a cause, is to reflect on what's going on in our society. We, one of the things I do with my charity events is we raise money for men's health. And that's why I was very much interested in your, your podcast, Sean. But if I told you that here in Australia, that the biggest killer of men aged 15 to 44, it's not heart disease, it's not cancer, it's not road accidents, it's actually men taking their own lives. That is the pandemic that we've got that will persist beyond COVID. And it's crazy that you've got this group of men in the prime of their lives, aged 15 to 44, and yet they're not seeing it through. What's going on there? So one of my biggest causes that I raise money for or raise awareness for is really men's health. Because I think that there is a really good opportunity for men to realise that the world has changed, but also for the people around men to realise that they need help in opening up, they need someone to talk to, and that life is precious, it's ephemeral, and, and it's really important for the people to recognise, you know, when things are not going well for somebody, to be able to to be that person to help them. Yeah. How, I mean, how do you help someone who's feeling suicidal? And I think some sometimes yeah. you may have indications that they're suicidal and it's a little more clear yeah. that, it, you, you know, you want to step up with some, some love and help. But for in a lot of cases, it's not. There's no indications that they may be suicidal, and I I'm kind of torn. Mm -hmm. on, I don't know what to do other than just try to be kind and and show love, you know, towards everyone. But 
what you know i'm curious what does your the organization that you you work with and and contribute towards <laughs> how do they go about saying okay we've got some funds what can they do to to, to materially impact the the suicide rate yeah so what the, the organization that i raise money for is called are you okay and the idea is that it's about being aware and about asking the right questions because there will be subtle changes in behavior um, and it's about being aware of those changes but there's a lot of circumstances where men have just disappeared and decided that's it and then they uh, they never come back and so you you are correct that a lot of it you can't there's nothing you can do and that leaves people the people behind wondering well what could i have done differently and how could i have changed this the most important thing that men need is i think checking in and to do it in a way that lets them know you're always there if if needed or when needed and if you do recognize the signs there are certain ways that you talk to someone or get help for them so that they take control of that process. There's nothing worse than telling somebody what they should and shouldn't be doing. It's really helping that person understand that there is help available and that they that there is a future, that there is a that that these things they're experiencing now are only temporary. They're not permanent. And there will be another side to it. Now, they've got to figure that out for themselves. It's not something you can tell someone to do. So one of the big things I like doing is what they call mental health first aid, which is where you identify people that are struggling and you help connect them with the services they need. Now, if you save a person from suicide, you've actually saved probably 200 lives in the process because mm -hmm. when someone does take their own life, you've got the immediate people around them and then the people around them who are deeply affected and they're affected for a lifetime. So by saving one life, you're really helping 200 lives or more. In, in, and that's where, the, where you get the, the value of the um the number of people that you can make an impact to is if you could save one life it's 200 to one you know wow. so yeah. i think it's a really good to me it's a great cause because if dads can spend more time with their kids and their dads can see their life through to retirement that's what the kids need and then the kids will be stronger and more resilient for it and then the kids will be able to navigate the challenges of a, of a complex, uncertain, ambiguous world. And by the dads dealing with these things, it will help future generations. So it's a 201 ratio. And that's why I think it's, it's if you want to make impact in the world, where else can you, where else could you make impact at that scale? That's one of the causes that I am really strong about. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Appreciate that, Bruce. Um, man, we've had a pretty wide-ranging conversation. Is there anything we should have hit on that we didn't cover yet? 
Um, I'm thinking one thing she didn't ask me about was my favourite books. And there's a book which I'm trying to get a copy of it and I haven't been able to get a copy. Apparently it's the worst business book of all time. It's called Make It So, Leadership Lessons from Star Trek Generation. Um, The best books for me as running a business, for your listeners, one of the best books was The 4-Hour Workweek. I don't know if you've seen that one, Sean. It's around how to help... Define, of course, that was a classic, man. That yeah, was, uh, that's a that's a great book, and that's that's really helped me in the last few years reshape how I'm I'm doing my business. Um, and uh, one of the other things I guess um, to leave people with is in my favourite uh, quotes or sayings. I don't know where this came from, but it's kind of a, a mantra for my life is be happy for this moment for this moment is your life so it's about being present and being in the here and now not being in the past and not being too far in the future because it's in the moment that you can spend that time with your kids spend that time being a dad spend that time you know enjoying you know, what's around you. Because if you, as Ferris Bueller said in <laughs> in the movie, your life moves pretty fast. You've got to stop and look around once in a while. And that's kind of what I wanted to leave with you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that, Bruce. Um, thank you for coming on the show. I've enjoyed it. Um, for anyone who wants to reach out and um get in touch with you or learn a little more about uh organizational agility where can people find you yeah well in and it's you can find me on linkedin i'd be delighted to connect with with as many americans as i can i i love america because i live there and it's interesting looking at america from outside in it's so different from being inside out um, and my company is vinaigrette.coach, um, and we specialize in leadership agility. So we help organizations use team agility to navigate disruption and to execute at speed. And that's, that's something that the change I want to make in the world. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for coming, Thank you, Bruce. Sean. Yeah, man. Hey, thank I, you. Hey, I, and good luck I, with I, all those children, by the way. I, I wish you well with that. Yeah, thank you, man. I yeah. will. Uh, this is the closest I've ever come to a time machine because you are living in tomorrow. It is the morning time, and for me, it yeah. is nighttime on uh, Friday night, and you have uh, Saturday morning. So enjoy That's your it. day ahead of you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, man. You too. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to make sure you catch new episodes as they come out. If you've already subscribed, please consider sharing an episode with a friend and or rating the podcast in Apple Podcasts or your preferred platform. If you have a dad in mind who would make a killer guest, send me a note. 
If you have a question you'd like me to ask, please share it with me. If you have any other feedback, including but not limited to hate mail, send it on over. You can find me on LinkedIn under the name Sean Radvansky. I always enjoy hearing from listeners, wherever or whoever you are. Thank you for joining me as I ask random questions to learn about various topics and hear how these dads live their lives. I enjoy doing these episodes and knowing that you are listening provides extra motivation. So thank you. I hope you make today a good day. See you next time.